of what you said. More about this exciting radio broadcasting opportunity by calling WNZK Radio at 248-557-3500. This is WNZK, Dearborn Heights, Detroit. Your ethnic superstation at 690 days, 680 nights. Hanania Show is brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News Newspaper, the Middle East's leading English language publication with print and online editions in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, France, Japan, Pakistan, England, and the United States. Listen to live radio every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern in Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York, and Ontario, Canada. Or watch the live broadcast on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. The Ray Hanania Show is rebroadcast in Chicago at 12 noon on Thursday. For more information on the radio stations, live Facebook broadcast, and podcasts, visit ArabNews.com. And now, here's your host, columnist and U.S. Special Correspondent for Arab News, Ray Hanania. And it's Wednesday, August 10th, 2022, and I am your host, Ray Hanania. We're broadcasting live in Detroit, Washington, D.C., and tomorrow, Thursday, we'll rebroadcast in Detroit at 7 a.m., and we'll rebroadcast in Chicago at 12 noon on the big 1080 AM radio, which covers all of Northern Illinois. So we're building up a following there. I got two great guests, but my first guest and, and segment one, one of my favorite guests, I, I love talking to this guy. He's so smart. Uh, he's Lebanese and it always reminds me of great Lebanese food. Whenever I talk to him and I want to get that kibbe naya, nobody makes it anymore the way they used to years ago. I don't know why, but our guest is ambassador Ed Gabriel. Um, he's the president and CEO of the American of the American Task Force on Lebanon. And he was recently appointed, I believe this week, by President Biden to the U.S. Institute for Peace. Welcome to the show again, Ed. It's always great to have you on. Thank you, Ray. It's uh, good to see you. And um, I'm told the best kibbinai is in Detroit at the Saad uh, uh, Meat Market. So, think so? Uh, please visit the Saads, yeah. They make great uh, kibbinai. I'm you told. can't find that every place anymore. It's hard to get. And you know what else? It's hard to find stuffed grape leaves with lamb. A lot of people don't use lamb. They're using hamburger. What's going What's happening to the world, Ed? Well, you we're know, going upside a, down. We're going global, Ray. Is that it? Yeah. We're trying to make other people happy, right? Instead yeah, of making right. ourselves happy, we're selling to Americans, Europe, whatever. Well, yeah, um, you know how the Phoenicians were. Yes, they were great people. Believe me, the Phoenicians, Lebanese, all of them. Listen, still, Lebanon, why do I have this feeling that Lebanon is still mired in stagnation politically and economically and facing a, a worse crisis in the near future? I, I, I'm worried about Lebanon. What's going on? Well, you should be. Um, you know, recent statistics uh, put Lebanon in the bottom four of the worst economic uh, countries in the world. It was just a couple of decades ago, it was in the upper third, or a decade ago, it was in the upper third of countries on, on the income scale. Uh, the World Bank says that it's one of the worst economic disasters since 1850, possibly one of the worst three disasters. So you have a lot to be concerned about. I was just there uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, was there for three days. I had 23 meetings representing the American Task Force on Lebanon and 
Lebanese of American, uh, and, uh, Americans of Lebanese ancestry. And we met with, you know, the top leadership of the country with a tough message. And that was, you're, you're, um, you're in charge of a country right now that's uh, going off the cliff. Uh, it's going to be a beggar state uh, by, by next year. And you will have been responsible for this unless you can uh, do some things in the coming months to help stave off the uh, impending disaster. Um, I can tell you more about our meetings if you'd like, but uh, a lot to be concerned about. Yeah, I, it, you know, there was a time when I'm telling you, maybe in the 80s and 90s, Lebanon was phenomenal. Even when I was there, I think in 2004, it was doing really well. You know, Beirut used to be the jewel of the Middle East. And it just the way things have turned out. I mean, is it because regional problems like conflict with Israel? Is it bad politics? Is it the religious uh, divisions that continue to tear Lebanon apart? What what's caused this? The, you know, I, I feel like I'm Ozzy Osbourne singing the song going off the rails on a crazy train. <laughs> That's how I feel about Lebanon, and I love the country. I don't want to see any bad problems for it. W what's pushing this? Well, um, I'm reminded of the Stones. I can't get no satisfaction when you uh, when you go there. But I do want to say one thing: um, the Lebanese people still are phenomenal. Yes, they are um, quite amazing uh, people, and. Uh, you know, let's give you a little bit of good news. I mean, they had election in May, and actually, the uh, the uh, the reform candidates, the opposition candidates, the change candidates, took the majority away from Hezbollah and its allies. So there seems to be a movement there by a progressive uh, uh, group of, of parliamentarians that want to make change. Now, that's a long way to go, and but it's th these phenomenal people who care about their country are doing their best under the circumstances. There is regional pressure on Lebanon, but that's making a, an excuse. Um, quite frankly, the reason why Lebanon is where it is is because of corruption. Um, there's a massive amount of corruption um, uh, in the country, and it really has to come to a halt uh, if uh, there's ever going to be any progress the International Monetary Fund has come in with a proposal accepted by the government so far, but the government has to implement a number of reforms that will uh, reduce corruption and address the needs of the people. So we'll see how that happens. On the regional level, level too, uh, it's tough. You know, you got Israel to the south, Syria to the east, um, Turkey, and, you know, the other countries that are, that are uh, really um, playing out a, a number of their issues in and around uh, Lebanon. Having said that, one thing has come up, and that is a, a, a negotiation between Lebanon and Israel. Two enemies are trying to settle their maritime border dispute. Um, we were encouraged that they're moving in the right direction there. And if they do, it'll send a great new signal that, a, that Lebanon can work with um, some of the tough characters in the in the region and, and find peaceful solutions. Isn't that a simple thing where you just divide a borderline in the water? I mean, isn't that what we're talking about? Maritime, you know, uh, you know, the two countries come together at a border, you draw the line out, you go out, what, how far maybe uh, 
you know, 50 miles, 100 miles, and then beyond that, it's international waters, right? What, what's well, the, the problem? There, well, there are technical concerns that you have when you draw that line. But yes, you're right. If there was nothing under the sea, you probably could find the technical answer. The problem is, and the good news is, there's oil and gas underneath that line. So who's going to get it? Um, right. And I think they're finding a win-win solution from everything I've heard. And that's why it's been so difficult. There's also a land border between the two countries. And um, over the years, they've actually reduced the um, spots on the land uh, to 13 what they call reservations where they have to um, deal with them. And all but two or three, maybe three or four are uh, uh, significant. So, you know, who knows? I mean, two um, countries that are not at peace with each other could maybe find a peaceful border, which would greatly help uh, uh, between uh, help peace in the area. Now, with all that fighting down in Gaza, um, and and I know I, you know that people say, why are you blaming Israel? I I mean, my feeling is that the Israelis have been targeting Palestinians since the beginning of the year. They killed an American journalist there. Um, they haven't done anything, and then all of a sudden, they their government collapses. They have new leaders, and the one way Israeli leaders like to exercise their authority to their voters is to hit at an Arab you know, target, and Gaza is the easiest. So they attack Gaza, they target Islamic Jihad. Now Hezbollah says, you do the same thing in Lebanon and you're going to regret it. That ups the tension, doesn't it? You know, and, and Lebanese don't even have the... It's not Hezbollah isn't even the voice of Lebanon, technically the government. Well, look, um, the, the hostile talk be, be by either party is not going to help the situation there. And the talk got so um, uh, so difficult in the last month that I think it actually helped speed up the negotiations on the maritime border. Um, even uh, Nasrallah came out and said, this is your last best chance for the next several uh, generations. And so part of the reason for closing this deal is to get get away from that tension. Um, and you're right. I mean, Israel has to come to, the, to, the, to, to realize on Gaza and, and the Palestinian issue, they can have a one-state solution or a two-state solution. But to have a two-state solution, they've got to enter into good faith conversations with Palestine to find a win-win solution. Otherwise, they're gonna get a one-state solution, which more and more people are moving towards. And right now, one-state solution would uh, uh, have the Palestinian people over 50% of the population. So it's really uh, in Israel's best interest to rethink how they're operating uh, in the Palestinian um, arena. Having said that, uh, terrorism, um, by the pal by the Hamas doesn't help this situation. Right now, they need uh, quiet in the region and know that they've got a partner. Uh, to Israel has a partner to talk to. So you know, both of them have to come to grips with this thing on a win-win solution. Does the balance you think rest on internal problems in Lebanon or regional pressures uh, that impact Lebanon as the cause of their problem? I mean, where where is you, I guess you can't pin it down specifically to one thing, but well, where's it? Can. Where's it coming from? You can. 
Lebanon has two problems. One is corruption, and the other is Hezbollah having arms. Um, you can't have a country where you have a militia that uh, you know uh, can um, push it, push itself around in the region uh, over the heads of the Lebanese armed forces. Thank God the Lebanese armed forces are becoming much stronger. What they were 10 years ago and what they are today is a big difference. So no, I don't see this mainly as a regional problem anymore. The Lebanese armed forces are protecting the borders and the sovereignty of the country pretty well. I mean, they got more work to do. So really what this comes down to is a parliament that will tell um, the corrupt leaders enough's enough, you're out. We're going to vote for reforms and change, and we're going to implement those through a, a, a good governance uh, structure uh, to make change. So uh, those are uh, two issues that really are causing the problem today. The IMF program, uh, the International Monetary Fund program, is a possible solution out if they react to it and pass the needed legislation in the next two months, just before a presidential election. And uh, the parliament will have something to say about that. Will they elect a president that is reform oriented or will the same old guys elect the same old guys? So, and go back over the elections a little bit for me. I know that we just saw parliamentary elections, as you pointed out, were reformers, uh, new faces, independents have seemed at least taken the majority, at least uh, pushed out some of the old, uh, you know, Hezbollah-driven, you know, coalition out, at least below the majority that they used to have. What's next in terms of the elections, the presidential elections? When are those? Have the dates oh, been set? Okay, so um, you're right. In May, they had parliamentary elections, and the agents of change, the people of change reform, uh, and, and, and in the opposition, took away the majority from the Hezbollah allies. Um, but it's very close. It's not unlike our U.S. Senate, where, you know, um, in, in the parliament, five votes can mean the difference about between who wins and loses, between the reformists and the old guys. Um, so they now have to, as a next step, the parliamentarians have to get their, come together in coalition uh, and compromise to make sure that they can hold the majority seats together to elect the next president. The next president will come to power in November, but they can begin the process as early as mid-September. So the process could start early by the parliament uh, beginning uh, deliberations to elect a new president. Um, and on the first vote, I think they need a two-thirds majority. If they don't get that, then it goes to simple majority. And of course, um, the question will be, will the, the, the uh, parliamentarians that are in the opposition come together enough uh, to make that change happen? Is there um, anything that you see that would change uh, the dynamics where Hezbollah really is the big powerhouse in Lebanon um, that would change their influence and uh, and I'm not, I don't know whether they willingly do this, but to actually merge back into the government and not feel like they have to be the voice of regional confrontation with Israel. What, what does that take? Is that even possible to even think that could happen? 
Well, a couple of things. One is what is the U.S. and, and international policy towards Iran? And if they close on a JCPOA, will they also um, close on um, uh, an agreement to stop uh, regional terrorism and missile technology? Um, so that's number one. Um, there are other things that can be done. Uh, the, the stronger the Lebanese armed forces become, uh, the more um, sovereign Lebanon can act against the militias. Uh, the other point is that uh, a reform-minded parliament can elect a reform government and a reform president, which will have reform policies and really change the attitude of those that have been in power and stop the corruption and move forward. Hezbollah is a political party and they are part of the fabric of the country, whether some people like it or not. The question is, uh, at, they need to put down their arms and um, make sure that they operate as a political entity within Lebanon, not become a terrorist, not continue their terrorism across the region I think the way to handle that is to go back to point number one in our um, our um, relations with and discussions with Iran. And I, I listen, I, if I were the Israelis, and I think this is true, they don't fear anybody as much as they fear Hezbollah. And in a way, it seems like Hezbollah is the shield that prevents Israel from attacking lebanon the way they did back in the 90s that invasion that they lit that they uh, launched um under ariel sharon and when i think about it though it, it gives hezbollah this perception that they're needed to stand up to israel if there were peace in the region and, and israel were to make peace with the palestinians and who knows if that's ever going to happen but if there were peace then wouldn't it be that the need for Hezbollah would diminish and maybe there might then be a movement to bring some peace between Israelis and Lebanese? Because I know the Israelis probably treat the Lebanese worse than they treat anybody. You can't talk to a Lebanese uh, person if you're Israeli. You could be charged with uh, treason. You know, the, the feelings that are so difficult with Lebanon, I assume because of Hezbollah, how do we move? I mean, is it even feasible that we can move in that direction where one day you don't need Hezbollah to be the big guerrilla, military guerrilla in the room to keep Israel at bay? Hezbollah has said that if there, when there's peace between uh, Israel and, um, and the Pal and Palestinians, there, there's no need for them to have arms. I, I met with the Shia Mufti recently and he actually reiterated that belief. And I uh, asked him, um, at, you know, at, at what point do you see um, them putting down their arms? And he said exactly um, uh, those words that, uh, that you seem to indicate. Um, so they're, they, they say that. Um, will they, do they mean that? Who, who is their godfather in Iran and what is their regional uh, mission. Um, Israel, uh, yes, Israel um, did uh, feel the effects of their invasions uh, with Sharon and in 2006. But I think their calculus is not that they're afraid of Hezbollah. 
Um, I think their calculus is that the international community will come down hard on Israel if they go and have a you know scorched earth um, campaign in Lebanon. So I think they're going to be very careful about getting into that quagmire. Uh, so in that sense, I think they're based upon their own calculations as they as compared to you know being afraid of uh, um, uh, you know some actions against them by Hezbollah. Talk, talk to me a little bit about the the presence of Christians. You know that when I was young, uh, the Christian my parents Christians from Jerusalem and Bethlehem. The whole family lived there, but over the last four or five decades, um, the Christians have fled. You know, Israel, they fled the occupation. Um, you know, there's a big political war. Whose fault is that? You know, they're saying the Arabs abused the Christians. My feeling has always been the Israelis abused the Christian. I, I've landed there. I can't even get it because I'm Christian. Um, but what concerns me is that Lebanon, outside of that small pocket of Christians that used to be in Israel and the West Bank and Palestine, Lebanon is the only real presence of Christians outside of the Coptic Christians that are in Egypt. And my feeling has always been that has been a factor in how Lebanon has been defined over the last few years and why it's being pushed into this conflict. You're absolutely right. Um, and right now there's a brain drain and there's a, a mass migration. We the 40% uh, of the doctors I'm told have left the hospitals. Um, professors are leaving the universities. You know, there's a time when Lebanon was known in the whole region and beyond as the education center, as the health center. And now they're being decimated because of this corruption and, the, and this regional instability. And, and people who leave, who can leave, are leaving, unfortunately, in greater numbers among the Christians, I believe, or in greater proportion among the Christians. So this is a real worry, and it's going to change what Lebanon really is if we don't bring this to a halt very quickly. Um, the U.S. understands that. They have put a lot of support into the university system, uh, American education university system, and in Lebanon, Lebanese American University, American University of Beirut, and other schools. They care about the private sector schools, which um, are so involved in teaching children in Lebanon and the health sector. So the U.S. gets it, and uh, as well as France and other European allies. How do we stop this um, mi migration from, from occurring? It's really sad, Ray. And I fear, uh, remember what we talked about at the beginning of the show, I really fear that we're headed for a welfare state if these politicians don't wake up in the next two months. And it'll be sad because people who can leave will leave. It's a 70% uh, poverty rate, more than 50% unemployment rate. And you, obviously you were very close to uh, President Biden during his campaign. You worked on the campaign. You um, he had a lot of support from the Arab community. There was hope uh, that things would change. And I understand politics. Um, it's not easy. Once you get in office, you can't, nobody can stand up to the Israeli lobby. So, but I, I do get a sense that Biden wants to do what he can to bring fairness to the Middle East. Um, it's sometimes the rhetoric kind of leans toward the Israelis more than it does towards the Palestinians or some of the other Arab countries. But 
what kind of influence can Biden have? And are you worried about these midterm elections shaking things up more? Uh, will the conservatives taking over the House and maybe the Senate, um, would that impact the Middle East in a negative way or would it be a positive thing? How do you interpret all that? Uh, what happens in U.S. politics? How does it impact Lebanon and the region? Yeah, uh, so um, we have been quite amazed by the bandwidth that the Biden administration seems to have with all the problems in the world and with a really a, a change in our global strategy occurring before our eyes with the Russian-Ukraine war and what's going to happen as a result of, of the outcome of that. Um, but uh, the Biden administration um, has been able to focus on Lebanon and, as you've seen, the region. Um, Tom Friedman said a few months back, um, uh, we may not care, the U.S. may not care about the Middle East, but the Middle East cares about you, and they will drag us back no matter what. Um, in Lebanon, the appropriations um, for Lebanon just last year was over $700 million. I think it's in the top five um, recipients of foreign aid. The Lebanese Armed Forces has uh, really been trained up by the United States Armed Forces. And uh, the, the Department of Defense has said it's the best fighting force in the region. Um, the, the United States and their diplomacy in Lebanon have been very clear with the leadership there and saying, you, you're getting no more money and we're not going to support you unless and until we see reforms that are accountable. Um, and they keep the diplomacy has been really upfront. Um, President Biden's visit to uh, Saudi was tough, but I think we're going to see the outcome of that in, in the uh, weeks and months ahead. I think two things are very important for the region, uh, Ray. One is America must ensure that Russia does not succeed in its efforts in Ukraine and the region. It cannot. Uh, if it does, America will be really hit hard globally by other uh, uh, allies and countries. They're watching what we're gonna do with Russia. And that's gonna affect the Middle East. It's gonna affect the Gulf countries and whether or not they um, trust us and work with us in the, in the, in the future. So I think that's really number one. Number two, I believe the Biden administration has to be clear in letting people know that we have a new uh, global world order happening and we're gonna count our friends closely and we're gonna need your help. And if we don't have your help, don't think that we're gonna be there for you if you're not there for us. They have to be very clear in that regard. And that will take time to unveil itself because you don't want to threaten people. You want to show through your actions that betting on America is a good thing. Uh, long term, they should be betting on us. You know, it always you you always answer my questions. Uh, any issues that you think I that we should talk about that I haven't brought up? Uh, it's not all negative. Lebanon is still. I'm telling you, when I think of Lebanon, I can't forget how beautiful it was, and is and how it can be. So I think that that has not changed. It's not eroded. Lebanon is just a phenomenal, beautiful place. And uh, it just would be nice if all these problems could get stripped away 
so they could rebuild themselves. Um, because uh, one of the m m my most favorite places to visit outside of Jerusalem was always Beirut, just a beautiful place. What what else is going on that maybe if I didn't touch on? Well, something... just to, just agree with you. Um, I took a drive through Lebanon in the mountains when I, recently when I was there, and I, I was just blown away by its beauty in spite of yeah. the torn down infrastructure. And I said, you know what? This has everything that Switzerland has and more. Plus, it has an unusually wonderful people. I mean, th that combination should put it should put Lebanon in the top five countries, the most admired, the wealthiest the most giving, the best educated, it should be there. And and um, I think it'll come back, but it's going to take a generation and it has to start in the next two months. And I hope the Lebanese leadership understands that. Surely many parliamentarians do and some of the leaders. We were encouraged by our talks, quite frankly, with the government leaders uh, this trip. And then, uh, of course, do uh, you think everything hinges on the elections in November then in Lebanon? So I think there are three things that uh, we'll be telling in the next few months. And uh, we can also talk about our elections. I forgot to mention that. Um, I think that uh, if they pass the ne necessary legislation on the IMF, that'll be one positive signal. If they close on a maritime border with Israel, another big signal. And three, if they if they uh, elect a president that addresses the needs of the people, a uh, reform president, uh, within a month or two of uh, November, it will really begin to turn around the country. If any of those three fall by the wayside, it's going to be much more difficult. And we have our elections in November, as you alluded to and, and mentioned. Um, for Lebanon, I don't think it's going to change a thing. Um, I think that uh, we've seen bipartisan support across the board and great leadership. You know, we have a Lebanon, a Lebanon uh, Friendship Caucus, the U.S.-Lebanon Friendship Caucus, and it's chaired by uh, Darren LaHood, Republican, Daryl Issa, Republican, and Debbie Dingell, uh, a Democrat. And uh, across the board, we see great support for Lebanon. So I don't think I, we see that changing. Um, and I think... Um, we need to get back to where we were before the Gingrich days. And that is where uh, the Congress supports the president and the conduct of foreign policy rather than hanging our laundry out. Uh, I remember as a Democrat, when I walked away from office and the Republican came in, um, um, uh, Margaret Tutwiler uh, replaced me. First thing she said to me, she said, Ed, I want you to know Politics stops at the water's edge. And I think we have a Congress that understands that and surely a president that's steeped in it. All right, Ed, listen, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I Listen, if you can get Daryl Lisa on, you and him, come on the show one time. I'd love to get his voice, you know, okay. on the radio. He's a tough guy. You know, sometimes the Republicans, they don't like to deal with the media because the, a lot of the media is so biased. But I think he's a very influential Arab-American voice. Um, and I think it'd be great. Maybe you have some influence over there and congratulations for being appointed to the U S Institute for peace. Well, you know, you. Many years ago, that was a rough place. Um, but over the last few decades, it's changed and it's not surprising to have somebody like you being appointed to their uh, membership. 
which I think is a great asset for them. Thank you very much, Ray. You deserve it, Ed. Listen, Ed Gabriel, my guest, always happy to have you on and uh, do what you can. Let's put a producer hat on and I'd love to bring you on and maybe Daryl Lisa will feel more comfortable. I'll, uh, I'll uh, send Daryl a note right now. Do that, please, because I'd love to talk to him. I think his voice is needed. And Arab, he he doesn't shy away from being Arab American, no. but he doesn't wear it as a badge on his shoulder or his uh, chest. But I'd still, I know Arab Americans would love to hear from him more. So he's not, he's not, he's uh, not a step away from his roots. I'll tell you, that's what I think too. Neither is Darren uh, either. Both of them have been remarkable. Yeah. All right, Ed Gabriel, my guest, uh, the president CEO of the American Task Force for Lebanon, recently appointed by President Biden to the U.S. Institute for Peace. Thanks, Ed. We appreciate you joining us. We'll talk to you later. I'm Ray Hanania. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we'll be talking with Abdul Al-Sayed, who ran for governor in 2018 in Michigan, and get some uh, perspective from him on what's happening among Arab Americans and Muslims in the United States. I'm Ray Hanania. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back right after these messages. ArabNews.com. Bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com. News that matters to you. At Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic in Dearborn, we provide effective physical therapy sessions in order to limit pain and discomfort. Top Rehab provides physical therapy care for any diagnosis prescribed by a physician, and we regularly see and treat conditions such as stroke, TMJ, fibromyalgia, sciatica, joint pain, and more. We use a variety of pain management methods, including modalities, soft tissue mobilization, and therapeutic exercise. If you're in need of physical rehabilitation or physical therapy, get the highest quality health care at Top Rehab. Most insurance is accepted and we're open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday 8 to 6, Tuesday and Thursday 8 to 5, and Saturday 10 till 2. Call for an appointment today at 313-846-0555. That's 313-846-0555. Choose Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic on Michigan Avenue in Dearborn. Life's too short to be in pain. Five-year-old Lila and her mom are on their way home from Grandma's, singing Lila's favorite song. A few blocks away, 25-year-old Dylan is visiting friends at a small party. He finishes off his last beer, gets in his truck, and starts for home. Mom and Lila turn onto Maple Street. So does Dylan. Every 50 minutes in the United States, someone dies in a crash involving a driver impaired by alcohol or drugs. If you're impaired and you know it, don't drive. Drive sober. A message from the Michigan Office of Highway Safety Planning. Are your hands feeling numb? Do you feel pain opening up a jar, turning a key? Are you noticing that your elbow and your shoulder are becoming stiff? Or were you recently injured in your arm? Hello, I'm Dr. Albajit Katranji, 
And at the Katranji Hand Center, which just recently opened down the street from the Somerset Mall, we can provide you with the latest in hand, wrist, elbow, and shoulder care. Visit us at www.katranjihandcenter.com to learn the latest techniques that we have to offer you. And I look forward to taking care of you. Visit us in Troy at 1565 West Big Beaver Road, Building F. Or call Katranji Hand Center for an appointment at 248-869-4263. That's 248-869-4263. The Ray Hanania Show is brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News Newspaper, the Middle East's leading English language publication with print and online editions in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, France. Japan, Pakistan, England, and the United States. Listen to live radio every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern in Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York, and Ontario, Canada. Or watch the live broadcast on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. The Ray Hanania Show is rebroadcast in Chicago at 12 noon on Thursday. For more information on the radio stations, live Facebook broadcast, and podcasts, visit ArabNews.com. And now, here's your host, columnist and U.S. Special Correspondent for Arab News, Ray Hanania. And welcome back, everybody, to the radio show. I'm really honored to have this next guest on, uh, Abdul El-Sayed. If I were to think of anybody who understands politics better in the Arab community, he's at the top of the list because I think he understands politics. He ran in 2018 to be governor of Michigan, didn't win. But when you listen to him, when you hear what he has to say, his politics makes sense. Abdul Sayed, thank you so much for joining us today. Ray, it's my privilege to be with you. Oh, yeah. No, no. Listen, and um, we're happy to have you on because, uh, you know, I, the Arab community sometimes is a difficult community. We're physically here, but mentally we're back home sometimes. We think politics the way they think back home. They don't adjust to the system. You got to change. But changing doesn't mean you give up what you believe, right? You run for office as an American, you win, and then you push the, not just your issues, but the needs for the Arab and Muslim community. How, yeah, what, there are a couple, a couple of reactions I have to that. The first is you know, a lot of um, our communities come from places where the opportunity to voice your uh, your positions, your perspectives is muted at best, and you know can wind you up in jail or worse at worst. And um, and so I think there's a real fear uh, of of truly engaging in the system. And sometimes that means that people just stay quiet, uh, or it means that people engage in sort of a, a, a politics of clientism, meaning we have to find someone from outside of our community who is going to carry. Uh, our interests. And, you know, if there are other interests that Trump, that, those interests, then those are going to be the ones that they voice, and we're just going to have to put up with it. The other piece of this that I think is important is sometimes we allow our own squabbles uh, that we carry with us to, to get in our own way. Um, we forget that the world is a lot bigger than our communities. And so we carry uh, our own um, you know, the, as, they, as they call it, the narcissism of small differences between our various communities with us uh, and that spills onto the canvas of our broader uh, engagement in national politics. And sometimes that can form our best um, goals that we, we may have for ourselves. And so between uh, those challenges, um, you know, it can be difficult. And at the same time, our communities made really tremendous strides. We've got uh, so much more representation everywhere from, you know, city councils, uh, in communities with with large um, Arab populations, to uh, the mayorship in a community like Dearborn, to uh, representation in our national politics um, through through a number of elected officials. And so um, there's a lot to be proud of. And so it's not all doom and gloom. 
Yeah, no, no, it's great. Have you thought about running for president of the Arab American community? Because we don't have a leader. Let's be honest. Do do Arab Americans have a leader? Because as you pointed out, sometimes we focus on the little negative things that we don't like rather than looking at the bigger picture. I wrote a column 10 years ago and one sentence people get upset about and they can't look at the bigger picture. Is that a problem that holds us back? Or is that just me, you know, uh, exaggerating my own issues that I face? How do we deal with problems as a community? Because it seems like the divisions sometimes are bigger than the unity. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a, um, there's a, a, a saying, and I'll say it in Arabic, uh, just given, given our listenership here. Um, which is, you know, verily, uh, all learning is by study. And all um, all practice of forbearance is by practicing forbearance. And I think sometimes we forget that um, there is a bigger picture, and 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 our ability to move forward means being able to have forbearance with one another for the bigger goal. And I think sometimes we we make the perfect the enemy the good, and it interrupts our ability to come together and work together. And also, um, you know, on the other side of that. There's a real frustration I think we have um, inside of our communities because there are a lot of folks who put themselves first as uh, implicit representations of the community um, in ways that that have them compromising the best interest of the community in the process. And you know, communities like ours have 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 always um, struggled with this issue. Um, and so, you know, it, it's it's a it's a real challenge that we face. But I, I think you're right. Like we we really do need to have a set of best practices in terms of being able to resolve our conflicts um, peaceably and thoughtfully without, you know, creating uh, bigger um, uh, and, and more lasting conflicts out of these, what, what start as, as small quibbles. Yeah. And I, I know that uh, um, we can't all be like Dearborn. Dear, I, I interviewed uh, Mayor Abdullah Hamoud last month, uh, last week, he was phenomenal. It was good to see somebody that smart who was concerned about the city and at the same time uh, being proud that he was Arab, but making it about being an American from Dearborn to help everybody because that helps our community. Do right. we lose sight of that, that when we are successful as Americans, we automatically become, become successful as Arabs, don't we? That's absolutely right. I mean, that's the thing is that all of us are here. Uh, when it comes to our ethnic and national identities as Americans. And um, our responsibility is to what's best for our country. Now, we believe that part of that uh, implies a certain level of representation, that every voice needs to, ha- needs to be able to, uh, to, be, to be thought about and every perspective needs to be engaged with. Uh, when it comes to policymaking in our country. And so, you know, that work toward um, mobilizing and organizing so that Arab Americans have a voice uh, at in our municipal state and national politics is important. And yet all of that should be done with the best interest of our country and our uh, country people um, at heart. The other part of that, though, is that, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, we talked about this a little bit at the top of the interview, uh, Ray, is that there is sort of a, a sense that um, that we also need to look out for folks who don't have a voice in their national politics. And folks can can often think that these two ideals are in conflict, that we're uh, either you know, legislating with the best interest of America at heart or we're legislating with the best interest uh, of others at heart. But actually, you know, we are best as a country 
when we stick to our ideals and we apply those ideals indiscriminate to what borders uh, they um, they happen to fall within. And so whether you're talking about human rights for people in America, an end to racism, access to fair housing, good health care, and a good job, or you're talking about human rights abroad in countries like China or uh, in Saudi Arabia or Egypt, where my family comes from, or, or Israel and the rights of the Palestinians, that those ideals ought to be inv inviolable. And frankly, when we stick true to our ideals, both at home and abroad, we are doing our responsibility to our country people, uh, and we're doing our responsibility as a country to the world. And so those two things are actually not in conflict. Frankly, I think they are mutually inclusive. When we uh, legislate in this country for the well-being of people abroad, we get it right at home. And um, and that means that you know our 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 people are not sent abroad to die uh, in wars that are fought over you know the the, the rights of large corporations um, to take other people's natural resources. Uh, and that means that um, the the kind of will uh, that we'd like people to have for toward the United States, the the kind of hope and aspiration that our country has long uh, uh, intended to stand for, um, that those things ring true in the hearts of people outside this country. And that's for the best uh, for people abroad and for the best for people here at home. Uh, you know, I've covered politics 45 years. I, I covered Chicago City Hall 20 years, uh, 25 more years doing media and running elections. And the one thing I learned about American politics that makes it so impactful is that it's like a baseball game two teams fight with each other. And when it's over, they're friends. They don't enemies. They don't stay enemies like forever that you beat me. Do I hate you for the rest of my life because you beat me? It seems in the Arab community, we tend to do that. We want a hundred percent and never, and not consensus. And I think sometimes we need to understand the power of consensus over the idea that everything has to be a hundred percent. I don't think that's ever possible. Yeah, and I, I think sometimes we're more concerned with disagreeing with what someone else said than finding the opportunities to agree, right? And and really um, promoting what we agree on. And I I think that um, you know part of it is is gotten harder with just the nature of our public conversation that's become so intermediated by meaning operated through social media, which uh, promotes the, the the disagreements rather than the places for agreement. And so we tend to see a lot more of what we disagree with and that just enriches our disagreement rather than trying to find and, and preach what we agree on um, and hope that we can persuade people to come see it our way. Uh, and if not today, then tomorrow. And, um, and that implies that we're still listening, we're still talking and we're, we're, we're still interacting with each other. But too often we find those points of disagreement, we use them as a pretext to end a conversation and then we find ourselves uh, down on islands um, rather than working together to build a unified voice for the, the well-being of, of our particular uh, community, for the well-being of our country, and for well, the well-being of the world. I think Mayor Daley, uh, the former uh, first Mayor Daley, Richard J. Daley, said it best when he said, we either hang together as one voice or we hang separately, weak mm -hmm. and easily to be targeted. You're a physician, you're an educator, if you had the Arab community in your uh, medical office on a scale and you were reading them the report of their health, what would you be telling us as a community across the country? And I know we're spread out, but it's not hard to see us. What, what would you tell us that we need to do to get in better mental, political, economic and social health? 
Number one, I'd say there's a lot of good things we are doing. And, um, you know, we are a community that has a lot to be proud of. And there is a, a lot that, um, you know, a lot of, a lot, a lot of, of, of progress that has been made um, because of, of work for, like folks like you. Um, and and that, that is something that we really ought to be proud of. And at the same time, there's always more that can be done. On, on, in the first place, I would say, um, you know, let's find the opportunities for, um, for agreement. What are those places that we all agree? And um, what does that agreement look like? And how do we make that the, the framework um, for where we go moving forward? The second thing I'd say is that rather than concentrating on um, on identities, let's concentrate on the ideals that we bring to the table. I think it's important for us to come together as an American, Arab American community, and that you know personally is very important to me, as is my faith. And at the same time, both of those things come with a certain level of of um, uh, ideals that they imprint upon me. The ideal of hospitality, the ideal. Uh, of hope and, and, and inspiration, the ideal of justice. And let's frame our engagement um, around those ideals. And then the third thing I would say is that um, the beauty of our community is in its diversity. And there is not one Arab American. Um, you know, in, in so many ways, I, I come from an Arab American community where, you know, my, um, my 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 uh, Arab American identity is quite limited. I, I am Egyptian American. Most of the Arab Americans in our community are uh, Yemeni American or Lebanese American or Iraqi American. There aren't very many Egyptian Americans, and that's sort of allowed me, uh, you know, because I quote unquote don't have a an Arab American tribe per se, has allowed me to to be sort of um, universally engaged in the conversations that um, that folks are having. And unfortunately, uh, what that has often meant for too many people is that. Um, because we tend to have this uh, interest in um, our differences, is that if you're part of this tribe, you're not part of that tribe. And there's so much more we can do if we're willing to come together uh, around our, our broader goals and our broader ideals. Uh, and if, if we can do that, I think the future is even brighter than all that we've already accomplished. But let's not forget, we've accomplished a lot. Uh, and there, there is so much that, um, that we have to be proud of. I think my dad brought that with him in the 1920s when he came here, mm. the old way of thinking, you know, that he's from this one group, it's tribal, you know, he's not the same as somebody else or other people are not the same. And, but, and we haven't broken from that. It seems like we're still embracing, uh, we've confused uh, our heritage and culture with these practices that really are not Arab or cultural at all. Tell, tell, take a step back. And um, first of all, are you planning on running for office again? You got my vote. You got my vote. I appreciate that, Ray. Not just um, because it's, I I love the name Abdullah, Abdullah Syed. I think that's a great name. And the more we present your name to Americans, the sooner they're going to get used to it. And the sooner those things don't stop them from stereotyping us. So when are you going to run? Have you thought about another office? Well, maybe someday. I'll be honest with you. Um, I'd be lying to you if I, if I told you I didn't, I didn't still have uh, that, that spark, uh, in me. And at the same time, I'm a father and I I found that you, you can either be a, um, a great public servant or, or a great private servant. And I think given how young my kids are, I I still got a lot of responsibility to be a private servant and be the best dad I can be, the best husband I can be. 
And I think only in having done that and fulfilled that, um, you know, can I can I be a really truly great public servant. And so, uh, my my own life circumstances have forced me to to, to step back for a little bit and um, and make sure that you know I, I get to uh, serve my daughter breakfast when she wakes up and tuck her in at night and um, and uh, and hopefully when she's a little bit older, both to understand that I'm gone, but also to understand why I'm gone. Then um, that might give me a little bit more space to, um, to 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 see if I can't take another swing at it. What, was it tough to run for office back in 2018? I mean, was it difficult? What was it like? I mean, when you look back at it, do you say, oh, my gosh, how did I why did I do that? Why did I subject myself to a fishbowl where everything that people don't like about me gets exaggerated and all the good things that you try to do get pushed aside or interpreted or minimized? You know, I'll be honest, right. The, the, the answer of why I, I, I never wavered on that. You know, you think about where our country is right now and, um, and where, where one could see it was headed back in 2018 when I ran and every day I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity of run. And the reason why I ran is imminently clear. It's not to say that it's not difficult to run, you know, it's 18 months and I quit my job to, to focus full-time on the campaign, which meant that I wasn't earning anything. My daughter was born in the middle of that campaign. So I missed all of her landmarks in those first eight months, her first smile, her first, you know, the first time she bit into a mango, the first time she crawled, the first time she walked. Um, I missed all of those things. And I, I really regret that. But at the same time, I, I like to think that I was um, working toward the kind of Michigan and the kind of America that can embrace a little girl like her. The other part of it is that, um, our politics in so many ways, the system of our politics makes it so much more difficult to focus on the ideals that bring um, folks to our politics. It's, it's very ossified. It, it tends to give a lot of um, weight to people who have been in that system before. And of course, the people who tend to have success in that system tend to have been in the system for a long time, which means that if you're a young person, if you're a person of color, if you're a person whose name is Abdurrahman and you know has uh, sounds that come out of parts of people's throats they don't know they have, it becomes a lot harder to, to break in. And at the same time, that's the reason more people need to do it, right? Because it, it won't get any easier um, for people from communities like ours and, and, and so many other marginalized communities across our country to break in if, if we don't try. So there is a lot of work um, that has yet to be done. I'm grateful to have been able to take a, a good crack at it. And I know that my race um, has, has opened doors for a lot of folks uh, inside politics and, and and other folks who who want to run, then I hope that I'll, I'll get the opportunity to come and finish um, what I started and 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 get to serve again. Uh, but for right now, I'm I'm just really grateful that I had the opportunity, and you know, frankly, I'm grateful to know that had I grown up where my father was born, my mother was born, um, there is no world where I would have been able to aspire to public office. And because I I was born in the United States of America, because I got to grow up here. I do have that aspiration and I can actualize that. And that's something to be really proud of and thankful for. And it's preserving that system. Um, that is why so many of us have to stay involved. Explain your uh, perspective and perceptions of uh, President Biden. I know he has a tough job and uh, uh, and I recognize that, you know, there are pressures on him, political pressures um, that sometimes are just impossible to uh, uh, push back. So yeah. sometimes as Arabs, we listen to him, we go, wait a minute, what you're not being what I thought you were going to be, but he certainly is far better than what we had. How, there how, is do no we doubt. Deal, how do we deal with President Biden and what's happening with him? 
Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I I think he's a he's a good-hearted man whose intentions are in the right place. I think um, he's had some real successes uh, in in office, and he's made some really courageous decisions for which he suffered politically. Right, the decision to pull out of Afghanistan, even though the pullout itself um, could have gone a, a lot better. The decision to finally pull us out of 20 years of war um, was an important decision, and the courage in doing that should not be uh, should not be undermined. At the same time, um, I, I do think that uh, that his efforts um, and his intentions uh, are one thing, and then the poli- the politics, the, the political process is another. And I think sometimes we pay too much attention to um, the individual, the personality uh, occupying political power, and less to our role in shaping that. And so, if we want different policies out of the president, if we want different policies out of Congress. And then the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we doing for it? Um, you know, I've been to too many dinner parties where politics are discussed and the president is either praised or, or mocked, um, regardless of who the president is. And then you ask, OK, so what are we doing to shape their policies? And we act as if politics is something that happens in a, in, in a glass house that we can't um, actually engage with. We see what's happening inside, but we can't penetrate the walls. When actually, you know, the, the privilege of, of growing up at a place like this and being and living in a place like this is that we can't influence, we can influence that, and we have to. Um, and so, you know, whatever you feel about uh, the president's politics, whether abroad or here at home, um, the question that we ought to be asking ourselves is, what are we doing to shape those politics? If we want better healthcare, what are we doing to drive for it? If we want uh, better access to 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 um, affordable prescription drugs, what are we doing to get there? If we want a more just, uh, more um, human rights oriented approach to uh, governments abroad, be they uh, in Israel or China or uh, Saudi Arabia or Egypt, what are we doing to make those things happen? And that really is the question that that I, I think we really have to be uh, focused on rather than, um, than than who the person is in power. It's how are we leveraging power uh, around that person uh, to move their politics and move their policy? What would you say to uh, Arab Americans out there, Muslim Americans, um, about getting involved in politics? What do they need to do to be successful? What do you think? Well, we don't have a choice. I think for a lot of folks, um, they think that politics, again, is something that happens independent of them, that they don't have agency here. And I would argue that not only is that not true, but the, 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 the choice not to be involved in the process is a tacit approval of the things that are happening in the process. And I know that all of us have our gripes with the way the country is going, regardless of, of what that is. So we don't really have a choice. And if we're serious about uh, our frustrations, if we're serious about our commitment to America, the American experiment, um, and the future of this place, then, then we have to get involved. At minimum, that means showing up to vote um, and making sure that everybody around you, whether they're folks in your family or folks uh, at your workplace or folks in your community, show up to vote. But then beyond that, it's also being, it's getting involved in, in organizing in a, in a broader way. It's mobilizing the voice of, of the communities that you're a part of. Um, it's uh, donating to, to candidates and causes that you believe in. And, um, and, I, and I think that that really has to be a, a big part of our responsibility. And then, you know, lastly, the, the highest um, uh, ideal of citizenship is uh, to put yourself up for, for uh, election to public office to represent uh, your community. And I, I do, I am very heartened by folks who are participating in the political process in that way. And so, again, there's a lot to be excited about and a lot to be proud of, but all of us have to play our part. We don't have a choice. And every time you've looked at something on television, 
uh, or read something uh, on, on, on Facebook and, and you get frustrated by it, ask yourself, what am I doing to change it? Because we live in a society uh, that doesn't just allow us to do that, but, but, but commands us, that, that really um, uh, uh, it forces us to, to take stock in what our role in this is. Uh, and remember, our, our, our democracy is, is one that's for the people and by the people, and, um, and the people include us. And so we have to raise a voice. I wish we had a five-hour Arab-American radio show where we could talk about this in more detail. I have to please ask you to come back on the radio show again where we can spend more talk, time talking about this. This is your first time on the show, um, but I don't want you to be a stranger. you got a very important message that needs to get out to the community, and I think Arab-American journalists have responsibility to carry that and present it to the community. My guest, Abdul El Sayed, he's a physician, a public communicator. What's your website if you wanted people to go to to get more information about you? Which website? Yeah, it's abdulelsayed.com, A-B-D-U-L-E-L-S-A-Y-E-D. Go ahead and check me out on YouTube, um, youtube.com slash Abdul Al Sayed. And then check out my Substack, my newsletter, Abdul Al Sayed.substack.com. And then, of course, I'm on social media at Abdul Al Sayed. All right, Abdul Al Sayed, thank you so much for joining us. And everybody, thank you for listening. We'll be back again next Wednesday, 5 p.m. in Detroit, Washington, D.C., and Thursday in Chicago. I'm Ray Hanania. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you. WNZK has available a 